0: Hey, dear preachers, Rachel Wren here. Thanks for coming to First Reading. Before we begin this week, wanted to offer a word of prayer for you. Sometimes we do so much praying for other people, it can become a, a second thought to pray for ourselves or even to ask for prayer for ourselves. So if you're not currently driving or operating heavy machinery, close your eyes, take a breath, relax your body, And let us pray. Holy God, I lift before you today this preacher. I pray for their bodies. May they be encouraged and strengthened in their inmost self. May they be cared for in their outer self. I pray for their spirits, that you give them guidance in what may feel like an uncertain time. I pray for their hearts and for those they love, that you connect them and support them. I pray for their minds, that you give them insight, give them the joy of discovering your word. I pray for their whole ministry of life and body and self. Bless them as only you can know that they need. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to First Reading.
1: Hello, friends. Welcome back to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and non preachers. Basically, everybody. (laughs) I'm Tim McNinch.
0: And I am Rachel Wren. We are coming to you today with another of our gorgeous Easter Psalms. This one is for May seventeenth, 2020. Uh, If you haven't been listening, then you'll notice that the Revised Common Lectionary chooses Acts for all of the first readings that we are refilling with a series on gorgeous Psalms. So Tim is coming to us today with Psalm 66 for this sixth Sunday of Easter. A lot of sixes. So anyway, (laughs) what, what do we have here in this Psalm, Tim?
1: Well, first of all, as is our want, uh, I'm going to encourage us to just go ahead and, you know, do the whole psalm. You don't need to start in verse eight. You know, you can spend the extra 30 seconds to do the rest of it, too. And, uh, you know, this is it's a medium length psalm. So that's that's fine to do. We could probably start out just by noting what kind of psalm this is. This fits within a genre within the psalms of what we call thanksgivings, which typically present sort of a, a problem, a, a a concern, or a past issue where God came through for somebody and rescued them. This one is really kind of interesting. The first six verses are, are kind of in the third person plural. There's some they in there about what God had done for them. And then it shifts in the second part of verse six to we and our experience, so sort of the first person plural. And then in verse 13, it shifts to I, so you've got the first person singular. So that sort of movement from them to us to me is kind of an interesting sort of structural thing going on.
0: Yeah, that really is. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, w- what do you make of that? Are there, are there different things that happen in the first part of Psalm that are either changed or carried through as that identity shifts as well?
1: Yeah, I think many Thanksgiving Psalms are primarily in the first person. So it's the, it's the explicit collective here that's, that's kind of the unique part of it. And that's, I think, a helpful reminder for us as we go to encountering God and uh, expressing our thanksgiving to God to recognize the ways that God has met us, not just individually, but as a community. And then we can express that in our own way. But I think that reminder of the way that God meets us as a community is, is pretty helpful in our hyper-individualistic world.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and especially because this psalm, it kind of it picks up on some big stories from the past to frame that whole individual experience, right?
1: Absolutely. So what we miss in the lectionary reading is that the Exodus is a big theme in this psalm. It comes up uh, in verse six, especially where it talks about the crossing of the sea and the Jordan River, kind of uh, God bringing us through the through the waters. And also kind of in a less obvious way in verse three, when it talks about God's deeds of power, that's kind of a, a biblical idiom for God's deliverance of the people from Egypt and into the land, these deeds of power. And so that that is sort of like the paradigmatic act of God. On behalf of the people that evokes all sorts of thanksgivings now i think the thanksgiving that's happening in this psalm isn't so much about specifically that event it's about other more recent things in the experience of the people but whenever they want to like set their experience of god's deliverance in its wider context the exodus always comes up and that's That's uh, what happens in this psalm as well. But that's not the only big theme that's in this psalm. Later on, in verses eight to 12 especially, I think probably the theme here is the people's experience of exile, possibly, or some other traumatic sort of military encounter. There's a couple ways to look at this. This could be kind of a continuation of that Exodus theme with sort of less obvious language. But I think it's more likely that this is a look back at one of the great sieges of Jerusalem. So um, either Sennacherib's uh, attack on Jerusalem in 701 BCE or Nebuchadnezzar's in 587. But the language there seems to evoke, especially in 11 and 12, even though the Hebrew's kind of wonky there, the, the image of being surrounded and hemmed in and tied up with a cord. That, that sort of imagery there seems to be recalling the desperation of siege warfare and that somehow God has rescued them either in, in that situation or over the long haul with sort of a return from exile.
0: So it's really naming two huge rescues or you know, two big moments of rescue in that first half of the psalm. Um, mm-hmm. to which i 'm mm-hmm. assuming then they they respond in the next half,
1: yes, exactly, so the first half of the psalm is talking about these rescues, and then the second half has really two different ways of response. The first one is really focused on temple worship, not worshiping temples but worshiping at the temple <laughs> <laughs> the The worshiper is offering sacrifices of thanksgiving in the temple and fulfilling. the the vows that they would have made when they were in those dire straits. And so, um, you know, this is very contextual. We don't really have you know, the Jerusalem temple, the offering of animal sacrifices or grain sacrifices isn't a part of Christian or Jewish worship these days. Um, So we have to sort of read that as representing a context. But uh, that's sort of the example of response that's there in verses 13 to 15. One that maybe is a little easier for us to connect with in the last part of the psalm, 16 to 20, is a testimony as a way of responding to God's rescue and experience of God's goodness. So the worshiper there in those last verses is making public the things that God's done. And um, I can't help but mark here in uh, these verses that there's so much body language Yes, in, in sixteen to twenty.
0: Yeah, you got a nefesh in verse sixteen. You got a tongue in verse seventeen. You got a lave in verse eighteen. I mean, you got a you got a ton of stuff going on in there. Yes,
1: yeah, so this is highly embodied response to what what God has done.
0: It it kind of reminds me if you think of the sacrifice imagery as the first response, and then mm-hmm. the testimony, the embodied testimony as the second response. It kind of seems like in the first response, there's a material action responding to God's uh, goodness, and in the second response, there's an embodied personal action re- responding to God's goodness. Does that seem like a, a decent way to talk about those two?
1: Oh, yeah. That's a great way to do it.
0: Well... I mean, there's a ton there to interpret or build a sermon on. Do you have any suggestions on narrowing it down?
1: Yeah, I would probably hone in on verses 10 and following, where it uses the the language of that traumatic experience and describes it as a refining sort of experience. You could really do a lot with that that would draw in kind of the whole of the psalm by kind of zeroing in on that particular lens of refining. One way you could do that would be to to tell some of the stories of your congregation's own history and how some of the difficult experiences that God brought you through have strengthened your community.
0: I love that idea, especially because when you get new members, they don't necessarily know all of that corporate history. And that's, I'd never thought about just straight up kind of telling one of those stories from the pulpit. What a neat idea.
1: Oh yeah, I think that's a really good practice, not just for a, a psalm like this, but to do quite regularly. I'm, I'm, you know because i came here to atlanta for for my phd i'm still relatively new to my church that has a long history and every once in a while somebody will off the cuff tell a story about something that was really meaningful in the in the church's history and it just helps you understand like how this congregation has walked with god over the years mm-hmm. so for you out there who are preachers yeah, don't forget to to do that. It's it's really a good thing. And any this this Thanksgiving Psalm is a great opportunity for it, but really any of the Thanksgiving psalms kind of lend themselves to to that kind of a thing. I I think uh when you do that, it's both addressing the content of the psalm with talking about the sort of refining experience. But it also really brings out the the testimonial response at the end. So it's kind of faithful to the the whole of the psalm.
0: It is literally doing the thing that is described, which is, you know, described with tongue and heart and voice and all of that.
1: Yeah, I love doing that. And in fact, if if your church's liturgy or sort of church culture would allow for it. Your, your sermon could be a great lead in for a time of sharing personal testimonies of God's faithfulness, either by like a few preselected uh, and prepared congregants. Or, you know, if it's your church culture, you can kind of pass around the mic for some open sharing of, of testimonies of what God's done. I think that that kind of practice just helps these biblical texts come to life for us where we can kind of share in the, the moment of expressing thanks to God.
0: Oh, absolutely. Now, um, aside from the the practical pitfalls that might jump up, um, what are some of the just more theological pitfalls that come from possibly preaching this psalm?
1: There's one or two in particular that I think would be good to watch out for. Verse 18 in particular is kind of tricky to interpret. The NRSV says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And that can be theologically tricky. It kind of sounds like it's saying that God only listens to pure people. So if you're a sinner, you're out of luck, sorry. Uh, but I don't think that that's really the heart of this psalm. In that verse, the, the Hebrew word aven, which is uh, often translated as wickedness or iniquity, can also be just as, as commonly translated sorrow or trouble. Just to give you another example of where that word aven comes up in that way, uh, when when uh, Benjamin is born to Rachel in Genesis 35, Rachel actually dies in childbirth or shortly after, and her name for her son is Ben-Oni, the son of my aven, the son of my sorrow and trouble, even though Jacob renames him Ben-Yamin the son of my favorite which is kind of a way for him to remember Rachel in that way but uh, just that's getting on a little bit of a linguistic tangent but just to say that that you, you might translate verse 18 something like if I had looked with my heart or if I had looked in my heart at sorrow then God would not have heard me in part because if the psalmist had been dwelling on the trouble the sorrow that they were experiencing and that led them to refrain from calling out to God, then God couldn't have heard uh, what they were doing. So I think this is actually meant to be an encouragement to people who are suffering. Don't let your sorrows, don't let your oven keep you from calling out to God, because when you do, God's going to listen. And so that's, I think, the encouragement here. It's not about, you know, if you don't think you're pure, then don't talk to God. I don't think that's what it's getting at at all.
0: No, I think that's a great way to think about it. The other thing that jumped out to me too is this idea of of wanting to kind of hold on to your secret sins and hide them from anybody else. And it makes me think of addiction, you know. It's it's not that if you're addicted to something, God won't hear your prayer. But if you are trying to hide that addiction or that shame or whatever it might be, can you ever really be fully calling out to God in a way that will allow that openness of relationship? So it's kind of that same idea. of. Being too turned in on yourself, either in sorrow or in shame or in addiction, and how that disrupts your ability to, to relate with God.
1: Yeah, that's right on. I think the heart of the psalm as a whole, kind of the point that it's making, is that God listens, yeah. God hears, so don't let anything hold you back. Yeah. Call yeah. out to God. Um, let me say one more thing about uh, this as far as preaching pitfall goes. Yeah. It's sort of related to what we were just saying, but I think it's worth pointing out that by nature, Thanksgiving psalms are kind of triumphant. But in your congregation, in any congregation, there are going to be individuals who are not experiencing triumph and whose prayers, when they do call out to God, just seem unanswered that's just that's just the reality of life. And so when you preach a thanksgiving psalm that has it's so it's so optimistic and so so positive, you have to preach it with real pastoral sensitivity. So it's I think it's always worth noting when you're preaching a psalm like this that these types of psalms, this sort of genre of psalms, they're f- they're from the perspective of those who have already come through trial and are on the other side of it. Mm -hmm. and just so you know there are other psalms lament psalms that are specifically for those who are still right in the thick of it right in the middle of their trials
0: yeah psalm 31 like we talked about last time
1: yeah no kidding so if that's where you are if you're in the middle of your of your struggle of your sorrow then um you know this this psalm can be one that is hopeful for you you know kind of where you could potentially be at some point but just know that God doesn't need you to fake it till you make it you can cry out to God in the midst of your suffering with all of the pain and confusion and doubt that accompanies all of that and God's gonna honor that that's that's part of the takeaway of lament psalms in general God wants those cries as well God will honor it and uh, in a way, I think that's what this verse 18 in this psalm is is honoring in a in a sort of little mini section within the bigger context of the Thanksgiving.
0: I think that would be such a beautiful ending to a sermon on Thanksgiving psalms it, to just kind of gently gather in all those who aren't in that place and um, and and fold them in with this psalm, like you said, the psalm 18 with verse 18, kind of lifting up that uh, commending that experience. Um, I, I, that was really well done. I think that'd be a great thing for preachers to do. So
1: yeah, I hope so.
0: Well, great work. I sincerely hope some of y'all are taking us up on this Psalms of Easter idea because these are so gorgeous and they are so good for faith life. So, um, if you, if you do have a sermon on this, hit us up on Facebook or or send it to us in some way. We would love to see these ideas uh, going out there. So, Uh, With that being said, if you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe. If you haven't reviewed yet, review. If you haven't shared it on Facebook or social media or text study group, please do so. Uh, We love this and hope that it gets out there into the world. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren.
1: And I'm Tim McNinch. Happy Easter season. Happy preaching.